it is your body, you know, it is your body. And it can so easily in these medical encounters feel like it's not anymore. And you can feel like you don't have the right to speak. So just thinking about that in advance, writing it down, having someone else who can speak for you if it's difficult, can really help you ensure that that experience is more where you retain control. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rack your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. A couple weeks back, I shared with you some pretty common yet serious ways that we gaslight women in medicine today. I actually pointed out 10 examples in which women are dismissed, ignored, or convinced that what they are feeling and experiencing inside of their bodies is just not really happening. Now, if you missed that episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 319. It was literally a couple Fridays ago, and it's only 20 minutes long, and it really breaks down the most obvious ways in which healthcare professionals downplay or blow off the symptoms that you know that you're feeling but instead they try to convince you that they're caused by either something else or that you're imagining them altogether. Now today I wanted to highlight a bit more about the history of how this all started. As you can imagine, the history goes pretty far back because we can track it all the way back to Hippocrates, the founder of modern medicine. He believed that women were controlled by their uteruses and that their wandering uterus made them hysterical. That's right. We have a wandering uterus that makes us hysterical. That was a crazy myth that they believed for centuries. And unfortunately, that belief that women are hysterical is still very pervasive in our culture today. Now, the father of modern gynecology, James Marion Sims, in the mid-19th century experimented on enslaved black women without anesthesia, convinced that they felt far less pain than white women. And this myth is unfortunately still very prevalent in modern medicine today. Still today, some doctors believe that African-Americans are more tolerant of pain. One study found that relative to other racial groups, physicians are twice as likely to underestimate black women's pain and black patients' pain. Back in 2016, researchers at the University of Virginia, including Dr. Oliver, probed the beliefs of 22 white medical students and residents and published results in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Half held false physiological beliefs about African-Americans. Nearly 60% thought their skin was thicker and 12% thought their nerve endings were less sensitive than those of white people. The medical students and residents who endorsed false beliefs like these were more likely to rate the pain of black patients as less severe than that of an otherwise identical white patient and less likely to recommend treating black patients' pain. Unfortunately, pain along with fatigue is one area ripe for implicit bias because it's extremely subjective in terms of measuring, right? We, we can't run labs on pain and fatigue. And when it's subjective, we tend to not believe women and definitely women of color that they're actually experiencing these symptoms. Now, no surprise, the history of medicine has been dominated by white males since its inception. It just is what it is. So when you look at the history of clinical research, you can clearly see how the knowledge gap emerged regarding very little we know about women's bodies. For many decades, women are either completely excluded from or vastly underrepresented in medical research. And nobody questioned this approach like ever until the 1990s. Now, there were various reasons given for women's exclusion. Perhaps the biggest one is that white men simply considered it the norm that that's what they should be looking at. And everything was and sadly often continues to be constructed with that mindset that white male bodies are the norm in terms of studying medicine. 
Now, because it's important to look back at our history in order to make policy changes today, I invited Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn, the author of Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, to share her personal experience and research that she has focused on regarding the myths, the gaslighting, the bias that she has seen in the medical field. Now, before I bring her on, I do want to quickly share a little bit about her. Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn is a background and feminist culture and history, and her critical writing has been published in several academic journals, including Screen. After receiving her PhD in Humanities and Cultural Studies in 2012, Eleanor worked for three years as a postdoctorate research at Rutskin Schools of Art and the Oxford University. She is the author of Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. It's out now, and she has appeared on BBC Radio to discuss this very topic. Let's bring her on to the show. Hey, one more thing. I want to share something that I've been consistently using for my energy levels this year. See, as a new mama, I am always on the lookout for effective and easy ways to boost my energy, especially my mental energy. And this year, I added Organifi's green juice to my morning routine, and I love it. Their organic green juice is made with 11 superfoods, and it's easy to make, and it tastes amazing. And luckily, Organifi has given me a promo code to share with you so that you can add it to your morning ritual. Use promo code Dr. Marisa, D-R-M-A-R-I-Z-A, and get 15% off of your order at Organifi.com slash Dr. Marisa. Now, I'm going to have the link in the show notes for this episode, and I can't wait for you to try it. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I am doing wonderful. We are not necessarily talking about the most pleasant thing today, although you are so pleasant in your own right. We're talking specifically about how we have a crazy history of misdiagnosing women, and there's a lot of myths around women's health and women's bodies that you have really spent time investigating, looking at, and in, in that process has have written a book, so congratulations on that. So I wanted to just start our conversation talking about, one, what was the impetus? Like, what was the, the thing that had you really want to dive into this topic and really understand the perspective that women have had to deal with for, gosh, centuries now? So the impetus for writing my book, Unwell Women, was my own diagnosis in 2010 with an autoimmune disease called lupus. And the form of lupus I have is a systemic one. It's the most common form of lupus. And 70% of people who have all the different forms of lupus are women. And the type I have, that's even higher. 90% of sufferers across the world of the form of lupus I have are women. I was diagnosed in 2010 after a really complicated pregnancy in which my own immune system was actually attacking my unborn baby's heart. So thankfully, the doctors were able to treat that abnormality and my baby was born healthy and well. But this also had implications for my own health and I got very sick. And eventually the doctors realized that I had an autoimmune condition, which was had caused my baby's heart condition and it also made me very, very unwell. And I started to look to medical history for answers. I was 
already a historian working in feminist histories, doing archival research, doing library research. So while I was doing that work, I started looking back into medicine's history to try and figure out why there were still so many unanswered questions around this particular disease that I had been diagnosed with. Because lupus is incurable, it can be managed, No one really knows exactly what causes it, like most autoimmune diseases, and no one really yet understands why it affects more women than men. So it felt like it was this real kind of, I was in this sort of wilderness space of medicine where I could be treated and I could be cared for, like, you know, my flares, my body could be be cared for, but no one could explain anything really about this disease. So I just started looking for answers. And as I was mining through these histories, I started to extend my research into other complex diseases that mainly affect women and that still have lots of unanswered questions around them. So this research really helped me come to terms with this sort of mysteries of my own disease and also with what it meant to be an unwell woman, you know, what this might mean, what kind of different insight it could give me into the world, into these histories. So that was the impetus. So it was a long sort of journey across the last nearly decade until I sort of felt ready to draw all this thinking together and write this book. Mm. In your investigation, kind of looking back, as women get autoimmune conditions more than men do, did you find that often when it comes to diagnosing an autoimmune condition, even lupus or Hajimoto's, or now, you know, there's a lot of other ones too, endometriosis, which we are considering an autoimmune condition, was one of the discoveries that it takes a long time for us to actually diagnose women? Yes, it was because I I was diagnosed fairly quickly. So my baby was born. Nine weeks later, I got very sick with a heart condition of my own, 10 days in hospital, and then I received a conclusive diagnosis. But actually, for about seven or eight years before this diagnosis was made, I had suffered what I now know to be the characteristic symptoms of an autoimmune disease. So I was suffering from joint pain. I was suffering from migraines, from sensitivity to light and sun. I was also getting sort of swelling in my joints. And also with that, mental health issues that I think were associated with being in chronic pain. And whenever I went to my GP, my family doctor or my doctor where I was going to college, I would sort of be looked at. Mm, you're young, you're in your 20s, you're probably hormonal. Um, I'm guessing you're anxious. Do you drink too much? You know, one doctor suggested that I might be pregnant and not realize. So after that time, I think trying to have my pain and my other symptoms sort of taken seriously and legitimized was so difficult. And I didn't have a sense that there might be something. I mean, I knew that I was unwell and I wanted to know why, but I really wasn't getting any validation back from any doctors. So I did start to sort of internalize this a bit and think, well, maybe I am making it up. Maybe I am fussy. Maybe I am, you know, a hypochondriac. And when I was diagnosed, I realized that, you know, there was an underlying condition and I had had this condition probably since my 
late teens, my consultants think, is when it sort of emerged in my body. And on the one hand, it was saddening to think that I'd gone through all that time believing that I was kind of conjuring these symptoms up in my head. But also it was very validating to understand that I was right and that my intuition about my body and my health was correct and that I was right to try to get answers and, you know, try to look after myself. It was that there was something in the system, something in the medical system around the relationship to the kinds of symptoms I was having that wasn't, you know, accommodating me and wasn't working for me. Mm, Yes, absolutely. And I know that there are so many women listening right now who feel the exact same way. There are a lot of dismissive conversations like it happened to you. There was just like, oh, maybe it's this, or maybe you're feeling like this, or or maybe you're drinking too much, or you have, well, it's just natural. You just have anxiety because women have anxiety or whatever that may be. And I know that as you started to look back at the history, that this hasn't just started to happen as of recent. This has been going on for quite some time and that you had identified some pretty absurd, not only diagnoses, but also ways in which we've chosen to treat women, which have really not made a lot of sense. That's absolutely right. I began my research by wanting to find case studies of lupus and other autoimmune diseases to sort of figure out how, whether we, you know, really made any progress in, not in the understanding of the disease, because obviously over the last century, especially our understanding of the immune system, for example, has completely shifted and has grown exponentially. So in the biological sense, yes, we have moved on in terms of our knowledge, but in terms of medical attitudes or the attitudes of the medical system towards especially women, especially when they report and describe their pain, doesn't really seem to have moved on very far at all. And You know, it's interesting to think about the ways that these dismissive attitudes towards women's pain, towards other symptoms, have sort of been embedded into medical knowledge in some ways. So, for example, you know, with endometriosis, which has a really infuriating history and was first named in the 1920s, although, of course, the symptoms of that disease have been recognized for a very long time in medical history. But when this disease was named, it was named at a time in the 1920s when many women were beginning to work more. There was a depression. (laughs) It was a shift in the sort of roles of women in society. So the knowledge that was emerging at the time about endometriosis collided with a changing perception of who women were and how they should live. And so these doctors in in the US, American doctors who were studying this, what they saw as a rise in endometriosis cases, decided to attribute it to the fact that women were deciding to have children later or were putting off becoming mothers. And so it began to get this reputation as a career women's disease. And so this kind of idea gets very embedded. And even now, you know, not all doctors, but some doctors will say to endometriosis sufferers, well, you know, if you're, you can have a baby, you know, try having it. That was the solution then. And still potentially considered a solution for some practitioners was that if you were to just get pregnant, 
you wouldn't have this problem. And that you get these sort of mythologies. I mean, you know, maybe for some women who do decide to have children, their endometriosis may, their symptoms may lessen, but it's not, it's not a cure, nor is having a hysterectomy a cure either. And that was another idea that was very embedded into the foundational medical knowledge because at that time in the 20s, you know, it was very popular to refer women for these kinds of surgeries because there wasn't the understanding, there wasn't laparoscopic surgery, that we didn't have hysteroscopy to properly look at what was happening, you know. So they made judgments and did things like radical hysterectomies. And this sort of, these sort of myths really stick. And how I feel is that these sorts of ideas, which are often associated with, you know, perceptions or prejudices about women's lives, they've often obscured or got in the way of of knowledge progressing because we get very stuck on these ideas that women's pain is, say, not real or not legitimate or that women always exaggerate, which we know is not the case at all. And it gets in the way it, it makes diagnoses are delayed because of that. Sometimes they're missed because of that. And what what is being reiterated then is a very long prejudice against women being reliable when they speak about their bodies. You know, this is a very, this is a legacy, a history is long legacy, and we're still grappling it with it today. And it really does have demonstrable effects for women, but also on, you know, our healthcare systems as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that women are, we speak a lot in this show about languaging to use with your practitioner, how to get them to get the labs that you need. You know, how do you navigate the terrain when the average year, like the average, I know the average year of diet, like the amount of time it takes to diagnose endometriosis can be up to 11 years. And same with many autoimmune conditions like Hajimoto's and lupus. And I'm thinking about your 10-year journey prior to your diagnosis. And, and you, you know, you think about your journey in particular, not only was the fetus that you were carrying having a heart issue, but then you also exhibited a heart issue as well. It had to get pretty serious in order to get that diagnosis. It did. And it really happened when I was pregnant. You know, this is what kicked off the investigation into what was happening in my body because my unborn baby's health was at risk. And so there was a different, I was seen through different sets of priorities. I was valued differently. I wasn't just a woman on her own talking about her pain. I was valuable societally speaking. And of course, it was absolutely right and correct that my doctors did everything they could to put my baby's health first. Because as far as, you know, in the situation we were in then, I wasn't unwell yet. My unborn baby was. But I was seen differently. I was prioritized and valued differently because I was you know, going to be a mother because I was pregnant. So yeah, there is something that happens about the way that we just don't value necessarily women's pain and other symptoms sometimes unless we are performing our kind of reproductive duty. And I feel like sometimes this comes down to the fact that we generally, I feel the medical knowledge, our Western medical knowledge 
knows more about reproductive medicine when it comes to women's bodies. So there's more known about reproductive issues than there is about autoimmunity. So there is a sort of knowledge bias happening there as well. But I've definitely felt like I was suddenly worth looking at and suddenly worth taking seriously because I was this vessel. Yeah, I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. I find that where we really become interested in women with endometriosis or with polycystic ovarian syndrome is when women are trying to get pregnant, when fertility is on the line. Otherwise, if it's just because we have pain or a massive discomfort, we, we tend to not really care that much. Usually what is recommended is an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. Like we, we try to placate the problem. Yeah, we do. And there's a really, really long history of attributing women's pain and especially underlying symptoms of more difficult to diagnose chronic diseases. There is a long history of attributing those symptoms to mental health or not even to complex mental health conditions, but to generalized ideas around women's emotionality and anxiety and tendency to exaggerate and tendency to, you know, psychologize everything that is happening to them and then express it. And there are some really brilliant studies done over the last 20 years as awareness of these disparities and issues has been increasing that show that it's not just that doctors and care professionals and health professionals look at a woman and say, well, women all just, you know, make up their pain. There's actually something about these more feminized ways of talking about our bodies and talking about our pain and illnesses that is sort of rigged against us. So there's been studies that show that women tend to, when they describe what's happening in their bodies, talk about their pain in a more social way, in a more personal way. They might give details such as, you know, it's very difficult to get my children dressed for school. I'm in so much pain or, you know, this is affecting my relationship, for example. Whereas men tend to use more sort of simplistic and descriptive language like, you know, my arm hurts, it's hurt for a week, which gives them more legitimacy. And this is not just a medical bias. This is a social and cultural bias that's been proven in other studies that more feminized ways of speaking, verbal and nonverbal communication tends to be either underestimated or sort of undervalued or distrusted. Agreed, 100%. And I know that a lot of the through line that you have seen over the years and how we interpret women or and in how we diagnose women has really been about whether people want to believe it or not, but like there is definitely an ancient sexism. There's misogyny that is happening in the medical system. Even though now there are more women in medical school than there are men, the curriculum has not adjusted. And I know that also when it comes to researching autoimmunities related to women or Indo or whatever it may be, that even though sometimes the money is there, a lot of researchers aren't necessarily wanting to touch it and moving in that direction. So we still, even though we've made some initiatives and strides, at least in the U.S. on a a kind of a, a government level, it doesn't necessarily mean that the research or the curriculum has shifted in accordance to those requirements. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because so much of this needs to happen from the very top, as you say, from researchers, from innovative research, from research grants, and ultimately from from money, from funding, so that knowledge can be created, which can then filter down to our first port of call health providers, our GPs, our family doctors, the hospital medics, you know, the people that see us the first people we see when something hurts. Because, you know, when we're in pain, if we if we don't have a name yet for that pain, we're not phoning up a rheumatologist. We will go to our doctor, our physician. And then it's what we're then having to do is sort of ensure or hope that our that the way we are communicating what's happening to us is listened to. And then that listening is then applied to knowledge that exists and if the knowledge just isn't there you know if there's not enough usable knowledge about autoimmunity or about endo or about uterine fibroids then it isn't going what you're going through as a patient isn't going to be interpreted that way so really for a big cultural change there needs to be you know as you say that research that funding that interest in these more complex issues around gender and chronic disease Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And we're just, <laughs> we're not moving in the direction we need to be moving in. Now, even more so, clearly we can see evidence of misogyny. We see evidence of women's bodies being controlled across the board. I'm seeing legislation happening in the States right now that is further trying to control women, women's bodies. And it's just, it's outrageous. But even more so when we start to look at racism and misogyny as well. So when we start to look at women, Black women, Latin women, women of indigenous brown color, we see that it even gets worse. I know that oftentimes we are way more dismissive. Like I know that we still don't believe that women of color, Black women or even brown women, they can tolerate more pain than white women can. Can you speak into how this even exacerbates more for women of color? So there are ideas that have still sort of resonate in medical practice today as unconscious biases around this idea, this awful idea, this false idea that white women feel more pain than black women, than Latin women, than indigenous women, than other ethnically diverse women. And this idea, which is, you know, a demonstrable implicit bias that still exists today in medicine, was really forged in the sort of early 19th century when there was a lot of racist anthropology happening, which was trying to suggest that there were biological differences between, you know, white people and between communities of color between people from nations that were being colonized. And this insistence on there being a biological difference, which is not true, many of these ideas were really used to justify some of the abuses of chattel slavery, the abuses and exploitations of colonialism. And the idea that women, Black women, that Indigenous women, that Latin women felt less pain than white women was because of this awful idea about civility that existed in the 19th century. So there was an assumption that the more civilized a person was, which means the more middle class, the more white, 
they had more sensitivity to pain because their nerves, they have more nerves. They were more refined in their habits. They had access to more luxury foods, to more stimulants like coffee. And therefore, they were very sensitive to pain. And on the other end of the scale, there was this persistent idea that women of color were more invulnerable to pain. And of course, this is utterly false and it's a complete construct. And it was an idea that really did justify some terrible abuses, especially against the bodies of women of color. And it's something, again, that comes down to how the suffering and experiences of women of color have been devalued. And this is something that has really persisted, you know, it persisted through the 19th century, it persisted through the 20th, and it persists today when we look at our, you know, woeful rates in both the US and the UK of maternal mortality and infant mortality for women of colour and children of colour, and the way that quite often these terrible injustices happen because for me as a white woman, I may be accused of over-exaggerating my pain. But for a black woman, she may she may have to actually convince a healthcare provider that her pain exists at all, which of course leads to some monstrous, you know, and awful mistreatments, misdiagnosis, and completely missed symptoms as well, as we've seen in, you know, the experiences of Serena Williams, for example. The validity of her pain wasn't over, only overlooked and ignored, but also her own knowledge about her health, her intuition about her body, her very careful and clear knowledge about how she needed to be treated was also completely disavowed. So, you know, we have these and it's about devaluing and it's something that really does need to be addressed because there are studies as recently as 2016 that show that these biases, these completely false racist biases around people of colour having thicker skin, fewer nerve endings, etc. these awful kind of eugenic biologically racist assumptions do still exist as unconscious and implicit biases. So I think before anything happens in, you know, medical curricula, there really needs to be an addressing this, not just from anti-bias training, but from facing up to the histories that medicine has been complicit in as it has developed over its, over its centuries and decades. As we mentioned, as you mentioned earlier, we talked about how we've got to have an interest in the research. We've got to be able to shift the curriculum. We've got to be able to address this head on, like address the myths of the myths and the way in which we've disavowed women over the years in the medical system. Because it's, it's very clear that we, we take a major hit, even cardiovascular disease. I mean, there's so many areas in which we really fail women that we don't recognize the symptoms. One of the things that I really focus on on this show is, is really helping women, given that we're navigating this terrain, given that we're navigating this type of medical system, how can we advocate for ourselves or how can we set ourselves up for success? And although it's unfair that we have to try so hard and we have to really own our health journey, but it's the way that it is. It's, it's unfortunately, it's, it's what we're having to navigate. Are there recommendations in your research or that you found personally or even in your own personal experience that you can lend to about how we can better navigate 
the medical system, especially when we're dealing with pain, especially when we're dealing with with a heart disease or an autoimmune condition or even a reproductive issue, because even then we still don't get that right. I think that advocacy is so hugely important. And if you're able, you know, if you have the energy and the health and the kind of mental strength to advocate for yourself, understanding that it's your body and you really are the best narrator and the best interpreter of what you're going through, no matter what anybody else makes you feel, your intuition and your trust in your own body and your feelings are correct. And if you are made to feel that you're not reliable, that your pain is not real, if you feel undervalued and discriminated against, that that is not your fault. And often it's not the fault of the individual health professional that you're interacting with either. Unfortunately, the system that we have in the US and the UK alike is all too often rigged against us. Because if we go to the GP, is it seven minutes that you get? Is it less like a minimum time in the US, isn't that, that you will get? I believe it's 10. 10. So I think it's really similar over here. So you get, say, 10 minutes in which you have to try to communicate and explain what's been happening to you and hopefully get answers or a referral or a medication or even just to be listened to. And sometimes that can work really well. We'll get a doctor who does listen, who does care, who does want to investigate further. But if we don't, I think there are things you can do. There are practical things. I think something that is really helpful if you're having different symptoms that you feel might be the symptoms of an underlying disease like autoimmunity is to keep a symptoms diary because being able to go into that doctor's office and look at your notes and say, look, I have had joint pain for two weeks. I have had insomnia. I have had gastrointestinal issues. You know, if you can almost sort of, I hate to say like dispassionately, like that we should divorce our emotions from it. But if you can almost, you know, present your case, your clear evidence, you know, then you've got it there. And it can also help if maybe you find that interaction with your doctor a little bit intimidating if you've got clear information that you can just impart if you've kept track and that also can really help because so many of these chronic diseases that are difficult to diagnose difficult to treat and often we're dismissed with they are multi-symptomatic so you might have joint pain which needs a rheumatologist You might have issues with your blood work, which needs a hematologist. You know, you might have chronic pelvic pain. You'd need a gynecologist. So quite often something might be multi-symptomatic. So keeping a symptoms diary can really help in that instance. And hopefully, you know, if you have a caregiver who is keyed in more to the multi-symptomatic nature of many of women's health issues, they might think, okay, we've got a few things going on here. I would say also that if you're on a journey to diagnosis, which can be very traumatizing, if you felt like you've maybe been gaslit or you haven't been listened to, I think that it can really help to take a trusted friend, somebody that has can not doesn't have to speak for you, but can at least be there to bear witness to what's happening in the room. I think there are also, you know, patient advocacy services, if you're able to access something like that, can be really helpful to you. And although, you know, a lot is said about 
you know, I don't know if you've seen this thing recently that's been going around, like, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. <laughs> you know, you've seen this, but doing your own research, I think is really empowering. And there are some incredibly good sources of information out there. Organizations like the National Black Women's Health Imperative, the Office for Research on Women's Health, you know, there's some really good sources of information out there. And I think this can be really helpful too if you do some of your own research. So you might have a sense of what you want to ask for. You know, I'm asking for a referral, I'm asking for immune workup, I want to go to see a pain specialist. And that can help too if you have, if you come into that room with some knowledge. I think it can really help. And you know, it's your body and you have every right to search for those answers. And to, in the US as well, you know, you have, there are many disadvantages and access and affordability issues in your healthcare system. But also you do, if you're lucky enough to have access to healthcare and health insurance, you can make a choice too, can't you? You can choose a different practitioner, ask for a different practitioner which I think, you know, in but all these things, of course, all these advocacy things that you can do, a lot is dependent on what you can manage yourself and the position that you're in. So if you don't feel ready to advocate for yourself, take someone you trust who can help you with that. I love all of that in terms of how we can implement and really take ownership of, of the conversation and what's going on. I was thinking we just had our son six months ago and I had a full birth plan for both options, you know, whether you know we needed a C-section or it was going to be a vaginal birth. And my, I had four prints of it. Um, and, my, and my husband and I sat down you know, many days prior and went over everything together so that if something had gone wrong, Alex, my husband knew everything on that paper. And then we had discussed all of it through. And you know, I was thinking about how much intention and time and effort we put into this plan and that we both really knew inside and out. And, and you know, we were able to really articulate that and communicate that. And we gave them the paper and everything. And I thought, we'll do that for a birth, but we really should be thinking about doing that for any visit, really, especially if you have an advocate who can help you converse. I know I've been in situations where there was a, a long time ago where I thought I was having some weird pain in my my lower right quadrant and it was pointing to my appendix. And so I go to the doctor, I, I you know, I called, called the doctor and they were like, go to the emergency room just in case. And all of a sudden they were strapping. I had an IV. I had all these things. Like it got, it just got out of control very quickly. And ultimately it was not my appendix. We'd never figured out what it was and it just disappeared. But it just, it, it remember it just, I felt like I had lost control of the scenario. And my husband was so lost. He didn't know what to do. It was all happening so fast. And um, it was such a great experience for the both of us to be like, okay, we always want to be advocates for each other. How do we prepare for these visits? How do we, are we, are we clear on if something isn't happening that's right for you or that doesn't feel right? Like how can one of us step into that? And so I really just love the steps that you, you're sharing. And I just want to speak from personal experience where we've, we've implemented those things because it, I was diagnosed with Hajimoto's thyroiditis. So I have an autoimmune condition and it got missed for at least 
four years and I'm and I'm a practitioner and finally keep on checking the boxes of it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Finally, we get the diagnosis for, for this autoimmune condition. And so I feel like we can all relate to this. And I think that what you're, what you're recommending for us is very actionable and very doable. I hope so. And I think that what you were saying about your birth plan and why can't we sort of actualize that for other kinds of healthcare too, is such a wonderful point because it's not just about what is going to be done to us. It's also about how we want to be treated and how we want to be spoken to. And, you know, it can feel completely out of control. I empathize so much with you with being in emergency rooms, A&E as we call it in the UK. And I had lupus pneumonitis, which is a lupus form of, it's pneumonia essentially, but it's caused by inflammation from the autoimmune rather than from other causes. And I went to A&E and even though I tried and tried to advocate for myself and to explain that I had an autoimmune disease, what I really needed was a steroid. I was taken for an MRI. I was given really aggressive blood work really fast. I was wheeled here and there. And you know, it was suddenly all taken out of my control. And, you know, I was on my own. And had I not been on my own, had I had, you know, developed a sort of actionable, implementable sort of plan to say, that was either written down or that say my husband or a good friend was with me at that time, then maybe that situation would have been managed differently. But I completely understand the horrible feeling of, I just have to put up with this and tolerate it because it's for my own good when everybody has the right to be respected, to be spoken to as they want to be spoken to. And I think also to have things explained, you know, for me, it's really important. I know why something's happening, what's happening, you know, what bloods are being taken, what tests are going to be done. That's really important for me to know. And without that, I feel really at sea. So just something as simple as saying, I want every procedure to be talked through and explained to me, I think is just that little thing that you can insist on so that you can feel because it is your body you know it is your body and it can so easily in these medical encounters feel like it's not anymore and you can feel like you don't have the right to speak so just thinking about that in advance writing it down having someone else who can speak for you if it's difficult can really help you ensure that that experience is more where you retain control Thank you. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I just want to say thank you so much for writing this book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myths in a Man-Made World. I think each and every one of us need to just be alerted to this. So we just have a a sense of knowing. It it just better prepares us for when, you know, because, oh my gosh, so many women have autoimmune conditions that are undiagnosed right now, right the second, millions of women, and we just keep missing them. And that's just one one particular area that we're missing. And so I just want to say thank you. And we can get it. All books are sold. I know it's available now. And anywhere else you would love for us to go and check you out. I am at Eleanor Cleghorn on Twitter and Instagram. So yeah, please come say hi. And if you read the book, let me know what you think or let me know of your experiences. I've loved hearing from readers about their experiences. Some are harrowing and distressing, some are hopeful, but I really hope, and it's been a real privilege for me to create a book that that can generate conversation and can contribute to creating spaces where women can speak up and feel like 
they're not alone. So yeah, come say hi. And I love, really love hearing from readers. Mm, thank you. So despite knowing a lot of research on how we fail women in medicine, I am still always a bit shocked and dismayed by the continued lack of importance that we put on women and what they are experiencing. It's clear that Eleanor has done her research, like that is what she does for a living, and she's really laid out the patterns that exist in our medical system. So if you're feeling compelled to dive deeper and have a greater understanding of the history, I would go recommend and grab Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn's new book. Also, the other book that I recommend is Doing Harm by Maya Dunsenberry. Both women have done an incredible job really digging into the research and the history behind how we have such implicit bias and how we are gaslighting women here today because it's so important to understand what to be looking out for. Now, the link will be in the show notes for this episode. And I also just want to quickly note that although this, this type of interview or content can be challenging to hear, I believe the more prepared we are to go see our primary practitioner or even specialists is the best thing that we can do, right? That we are advocating for our bodies and our health. Because at the end of the day, having ownership of your health and your body is what matters most. When we claim that ownership, we can help guide what's best for us and speak up when something doesn't feel right or when something we just know isn't right. Not only do we deserve this, but our daughters and granddaughters and nieces deserve it too, right? We are creating a legacy and a legacy of shifting the culture and shifting the paradigm of how women are treated in this country and worldwide. I want to say thank you so much for listening in on the Essentially You podcast. As always, this show is about providing tools to rock your hormones and feel amazing in your body. Now, if there's someone in your life that needs to hear this today, take a moment, screenshot the episode, send it to them, or I love it when you share it on social media. You can tag me up at Dr. Marisa on Instagram and hashtag hormone literacy or hormone CEO. Now, coming up next is a fun conversation with Stu Schaefer. The three food mistakes 68% of women are making that causes fatigue, weight gain, and even anxiety. This is going to be a really fun conversation. We're going to be talking about metabolic flexibility and so much more. Until then, have an amazing week. 